Alright, this is Ricky. And this is Brendan. And you're listening to A Gentleman's Disagreement. What I wouldn't give for the hope I used to find in a case of lion's head. Folks of different minds because even though it did not share the pains we share, that American ideal friends made over arguments in an early morning buzz. Need an early morning buzz. All right, Brendan, it is Friday, June the 30th. Um, somehow we've come to the end of June here. Um, but as you reminded me last last podcast, that that summer has only just begun officially. I <laughs> um, although, uh, well, yeah, actually, I feel like we got some some real summer weather this time. But uh, we're we're uh, we're fresh off our our little quiz bowl team that I think um, that I thought performed admirably, but apparently not so high. <laughs> yeah. So last week, Ricky and I, and along with two of our other friends, Dan and Devin went to the JFK library and museum here in Boston. Very cool, cool library museum. If you live in Boston, if you ever come to visit Boston, definitely worth a visit, not only for the history of it, but it's beautiful architecture. It's located on the, this point in uh, Dorchester, South Boston. Uh, it, it's a very cool venue. Anyway, we went and we did this, like Ricky said, like a trivia quiz bowl type thing. We didn't really know what to expect. We were the youngest people there, and we're we're doing the the trivia and I think we're doing pretty well. And then they read out like the scores. <laughs> We were, we were not doing very well relative to everyone else, but it was a lot of fun. We learned some things, had a nice time, nice solid Wednesday evening, got to enjoy the museum a little bit quietly. Uh, so it was it was a very fun uh, time, but a really interesting experience. Yeah, um, I think one of our favorite questions, or not favorite questions, but one that drove us nuts over the, the course of the uh the evening, uh, we'll throw it out here. And if, if, uh, any of our listeners want to DM us or try and shoot us the answer, um, maybe there'll be, maybe they'll, maybe there'll be something in for you. Also, maybe there won't. This podcast runs up very lean shit, but you never know unless you, you send us a message, but it was which A-list actor, uh, has the same first and last or same for her. His first name and last name are last names of U.S. presidents. What A-list actor? Um, we we thought a lot about ones that uh, that worked for one name or the other, but but did not manage to come up with this this actor's name. Uh, but yeah, if you do, send us a message. But enough about our dismal performance at trivia, Brendan. What are we uh, What are we talking about this week? Yeah, you gave even more hints than we got, but hopefully that'll help people. And maybe they'll be like, you idiots, how did that not come to you? But Ricky was even more generous with his clues than what we actually got at, at the time. But but it was it was still, once they told us the answer, we were like, oh my goodness, we, we should have gotten that. All right, uh, we are thrilled to welcome Adam Lane onto the podcast. Adam went to high school with Ricky and I, although he wasn't in the same class as us. He is now the treasurer of St. Louis, and he's been in that role for a little over two years now. He also has a, a pretty cool backstory as a teacher and working in non- nonprofits before transitioning into 
the role of, of city government. So we're, we're, we feel really lucky to have him on. He's super busy doing really important work. And so for him to give us some time today is, is going to be great. We're excited to talk to him not only about his career path and how he got out to St. Louis and then got into city government and the work that he's doing now, but just some of his thoughts. I, I feel like in a lot of ways, Ricky, this conversation, this episode flows from last episode in a lot of ways where last episode we talked about Juneteenth and about education around Juneteenth and about Black history and American history and race in the United States. We talked about how Tim Scott puts forth one idea about race, and that's in some ways in contrast to the idea that Barack Obama puts forth. And we we talked about affirmative action, which just just recently the the Supreme Court struck down. And so I'm I'm hopeful and curious to hear. Adam Adam's thoughts on all of those things. So again, we're we're super excited to have him on. Before we do bring him on, quick reminder, everyone out there, the podcast is brought to you by the hardworking craftsmen over at Cannon Hill Woodworking. They've been building handcrafted high-end custom tables and desks in Boston since 2018. That's Cannon with two ends. You can check them out on Instagram or visit them online at www.cannonhillwood.com. Ricky, it is July 4th weekend. I think that probably means a lot of barbecues. I know you are personally a grill master. What is, so I got a question for you. Uh, what is a woodworker's favorite thing to eat with a hamburger? Oh my God. I don't know. I got nothing. A French door. <laughs> Chips. Uh, that's good. Yeah. Well, never- we do hope. <laughs> you know, never get it. It's hard. It's hard on the spot, as we learned in our trivia. Um, it's like, oh, yeah, I should have known that, but didn't at the time. All right. Uh, I hope everyone does have enjoyed their barbecues and all of your celebrations for July 4th weekend. But before we get into that weekend, let's bring on Adam. All right. We are now thrilled to welcome... Adam Lane, the treasurer of the city of St. Louis, onto the program. Adam went to high school with Ricky and I before heading down to D.C., where he went to George Washington University. And then he headed out to St. Louis uh, as part of the Teach for America program, where he began teaching. And then we lost him to St. Louis. He's been out there since since uh, since post-college. He, as I said, taught in St. Louis for a number of years, then went on to serve on the St. Louis Public School Board, and then transitioned again into the office of the treasurer, and then was appointed the treasurer um, upon the election of former treasurer Tashara Jones, who was historic as the first Black woman to be elected to uh, be St. Louis's mayor. Um, so Adam's been in that position for over two years now, um, and we are really thrilled to welcome on to the to, to program. So Adam, thanks for joining us. Absolutely. Thank you all for having me. So I am just like personally very curious. Obviously, Teach for America brings you out to St. Louis, but Teach for America, for those people who don't know, is generally like a two-year program. So when you were headed out there, were you just eyes wide open, just kind of see what the experience was like? Or how did how did you end up staying in St. Louis for all this time? Yeah, that's a great question. I get it. I get it all the time. Um, So I came out, yep, came out through Teach for America and we came with a group of 100 core members. So it was almost like college part two. So you don't know anyone. You're in a, you know, a new place. 
um, maybe a new place and uh, you're just meeting these people all over again uh, with the added twist of you have to be a kind of adult. So find out where you're going to live, have a full time job and all that. I had never been to St. Louis uh, before I got here. Couldn't point to St. Louis on a map. Um, I, I don't want to attribute that to my RL education. <laughs> I didn't know where it was. I didn't know where it was. I didn't pay attention too much in the geography <laughs> classes, but um, came out to St. Louis and honestly immediately felt like I had stepped back in time. Um, there were certain things that I saw. I'm like, what? They're, they're still doing this in St. Louis. Um, but that was, that was 12 years ago and, uh, fell in love with St. Louis really through the classroom. So with Teach for America, sometimes the critique is that all the TFA teachers stay together. I was lucky enough that I went to, and I taught high school math, that I went to a school where I was one of only two core members, um, at a school of of 400. So our 400 students. So, um, a bunch of teachers, but I, I didn't have like my TFA click at the school, but I got to actually immerse myself in, um, work with the other teachers there, um, learn from them, have them learn from me. So it was it was really good. And I, I just really embraced uh, my students, getting to learn about them and building those relationships that were key to the successes that I was able to see in the classroom. But those relationships really transcended the classroom um, through a lot of you know things that were happening uh, in and around St. Louis, in and around the country, being able to have those conversations. And with St. Louis being a relatively small city, I think we're about 70 square miles, um, you see everyone everywhere. So a city of 300,000. And when you teach 400 students or when you teach in a school of 400 students, you you see there, you see them, you see their families all around. And when I left teaching, I went to an education program. So I taught for three years, went to the education program. And that's even more students and families. And we're supporting them from seventh grade all the way to college completion. So really what kept me in St. Louis was feeling really connected to the students here, um, their families and feeling like they were they were my family. And then time just flies. So then, then it was 12 years later and I'm, and I'm still here. Yeah, it really does. That makes a lot of sense to me. I would imagine, and certainly correct me if I'm wrong, don't want to speak for you, but like I, when I was teaching, you know, obviously just, just wrapped myself, I loved it so much. And it was, it was really, I had no desire to stop teaching. The, the desire to, to shift was like, I could potentially, I, I could do more. Like as a teacher, you see so much that is good, but also that could be better with like cities, towns, the the state, the country. So can you talk about like that motivation going from teaching to into like the education, you know, nonprofits, and then uh, then the shift to really being an elected official? Yeah. And no, you said it absolutely perfectly. It was was exactly the same. It's in the classroom. You realize you have, you know, the impact that you have. And again, teaching high school math, it was, you know, pretty standard curriculum. And I had to focus on that. But so it was like, when is the time to build in the, you know, the leadership piece? And when is the time to have those critical conversations um, with students? And, you know, math is cool and all, but you know, what what I'm teaching you in your algebra one class, are you really going to remember that, you know, 10 years down the road anyway? So it's like, how do we how do we increase those um, genuine experiences and those transformational experiences that actually set students up for success? And you're right, there was a lot of opportunity outside the classroom. Um, so I, I yeah, so it, it was literally the same for me. I'm like, I it wasn't that I didn't. And teaching is tough, as you know, it's one of it's probably still the toughest job I ever had in my life. Um, but there was no desire to necessarily leave teaching or leave education. It was more so how do I increase my impact? And so with teaching a couple hundred students a year, um, 
I shifted to that education nonprofit. So I was actually thinking about going back to the East Coast. And I heard about this wonderful education nonprofit that was preparing students who wanted to go on to four-year college and universities with the tools, skills, and high school experiences necessary to do it. Um, and I really go back to my experience at RL uh, coming from Nativity Prep and, you know, them having that mission of doing the same. Uh, and then also a lot of these schools were tuition-based schools. Uh, and we would provide scholarships as well. So just, again, thinking about my RL experience, it was almost like a perfect fit for helping supporting students in the in the city around getting those high quality educational experiences so that they would become the, you know, the future generation. So going from a classroom of 30 to a program of over 300 and then asking myself the same question, like, where can I maximize my impact? Um I had a, uh, the, actually the former executive director of that nonprofit was on the school board and was rolling off and recommended that I, um, that I run and had never thought about politics, even just being in DC all those years was, <laughs> I was, I was a programs person. Like what programs? Shocking. Are you, you, you were the one. <laughs> right. Yeah. right. I'm like, what programs can you place? Don't, don't put me in politics. Yeah. But I said, all right, you know, this, this is also an opportunity to go from, you know, again, classroom at 30. A program of about 300 to then a school district of 20,000. Um, and then again, now a city of almost 300,000. So it's always about, it's always been about where can I maximize my impact and what, uh, not necessarily what is next, but I would say where am I most needed? So I knew I was most needed in the classroom for those two plus years, so those three years in the classroom, then at that education nonprofit, then on the school board, and then uh, the the mayor and then and former treasurer uh, thought I was most needed in this role. Uh, which I've been for two years and, and two months. And I've loved every piece of the journey. And it's a combination of being prepared, um, as they always say, or being prepared uh, for everything and being prepared for the world, but also being in the, the right place at the right time and saying yes to the right opportunities. That's really cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I I, I want to shift gears and you, you'll kind of notice I come in with a little bit of more off the wall questions. But I, you know, when you said you moved out to to St. Louis 12 years ago, I couldn't help but think about, uh, well, you know, we recently crossed an, another anniversary for George Floyd. And then 12 years ago, I think 2014, you know, we're coming up on the anniversary of Mike Brown and, and Ferguson. And I, and I remember when that happened, sort of thinking about my life in Massachusetts and thinking about Missouri sort of being worlds apart at that time. You were living there during that time. I wonder how, if you sort of reflect back on what you were thinking as as everything was unfolding. Obviously, the uh, his his tragic death, but then also you know everything that happened in the city in Ferguson and then um, in St. Louis, I'm sure as well. Um, how that kind of contributes to how yeah how you, how you decided to either stay there and what what you've kind of gotten into since then. Yeah, um, I'll, I'll tell a quick story. Yeah, I remember, I think a lot of us in St. Louis remember 2014 like it was yesterday. Uh, but I also remember 2012, my second semester teaching uh, when Trayvon Martin was uh, killed in, in Florida. And I, I was like, you know, not selfishly, but I was like, oh, this is my opportunity. This is this is what I've been talking about, you know, being a um, uh, a representative teacher in the classroom in a school that was 98% um, Black African-American students. I said, this is a perfect opportunity to not just talk about math and go about business as usual, but hear my students out. 
And I made that space and I had one class. Well, a lot of my classes, they were just eerily quiet. And for me, it was, and I had to understand where I was as a 22, 23 year old adult who sees the world in a different, in a different way. Um, but I created that space for them. And my students were like, yeah, we don't want to talk about that. And, and I'm like, I, I was very shocked and surprised. Um, and I asked them why. And they said, well, that happened all the way in Florida. That has nothing to do with us. Um, and that was a an eerie um, precursor to because then two years later, um, a student that a lot of my students knew um, at the time was was shot and killed in Ferguson. And, you know, for context for those outside of St. Louis, uh, but I guess might be familiar with Boston, Ferguson and, and St. Louis. Again, St. Louis, everywhere you get, you can drive around the city uh, anywhere is 15 minutes away or less. Um, Ferguson is just right outside of the city in St. Louis County, but the region is pretty fluid. Um, so it's maybe 25 minutes away from the city center. So it's not it's not like it's way out there. Um, it, it's pretty close to home. Um, and with the amount of transients in St. Louis, everyone moves around a lot. So the communities are very small. Uh, so, yeah, thinking back on that, it was. It, it was definitely a place where, and I had been active um, on GW's campus with issues of race and diversity, but it was definitely something that um, was was pretty triggering. So it was pretty triggering as a as a young black man in St. Louis, uh, pretty triggering for the students that I was serving. And really, I wrestled with how am I, and I had transitioned to the nonprofit at this point. I think it was, I was maybe... Uh, yeah, three months into to the nonprofit. So I'm still learning processes. I'm still learning my role, still learning about the 300 students that we're supporting and then having to support them around this and make that shift. But I would say the biggest thing was intentionality and community building. So intentionality with the space that I was occupying. So working with our students, working with their schools. So a lot of their schools are predominantly white high schools. Um, and they didn't know they're like, well, how do we support um all of our students around just what's happening in their region um, and how polarizing it is, but also how do we support the the students who um, may not feel as represented, as inclusive, uh, as inclusive as uh, as they could be in this space already, regardless of external things that are happening. So there was a lot to do, um, but on the community piece, I, a lot of the the people that I consider really close now, I met processing on the streets of Ferguson um, and protesting in the city of St. Louis. Um, and, and knowing what the true narrative is and not the, you know, burning down, uh, stories at the end of the night, but going out there and hearing stories of people who, you know, it, it was before Mike Brown that were saying, you know, I lost my son to, um, gun violence. I lost my, uh, son to, uh, a police officer shooting them. I lost my son to, you know, this and that. Um, and hearing those stories, it was it was super powerful because I know I haven't dealt with anything like that in my life. Um, and I come from the inner city of Boston. But um, for the people who did deal with it, being able to hear their stories and connect with that was it was it was super powerful. And it really set the trajectory for the lens that I take to equity and the work that I do today. And also made me love St. Louis even even that much more to see people come together of all races, creeds, political um, beliefs to say, you know, this is a life lost. And what is, this is more than just one police officer. This is this, like, how do we address this system and look at what are some root causes that we can, yeah, that we can address to say, you know, St. Louis needs to be better as a whole. How do we get there together? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, that is, that's an incredible experience and I can totally understand how 
you know, after, after that, the tragedy that getting out there in the community with the other community members um, would make you, you know, feel a, a specific tie there. Um, I wonder if also, and, and, you know, let me, let me know how you were thinking about this, but did you feel like, you know, at something after that, like a place like St. Louis is where I need to be? Or were you, when, when you went through that, would you have been able to say, kind of like the students in St. Louis were saying, you know, that's Florida, totally different place. Like, did, could you see something like that happening in a place like Boston? I think one of the things that we talk about here a little bit is how, you know, different either coastal cities think about racism versus, you know, when we say, you know, racism in the South, it's like a different thing. But, you know, as a, as a black man who grew up in the city of Boston, I'm curious, you know, how, how do you, how did you think about that? How do you reconcile that? Yeah, it, yeah. So, so the first part, I definitely think it uh, really rooted me in St. Louis and a few of the activists. um, Well, I'll say this, I was definitely challenged by opportunity and not necessarily challenged by choice prior to 2014. But what I saw was a lot of activists who, maybe weren't um, ever interested in politics, weren't interested in advocacy on that on that level, but realized that there was a need for it um, in our state representatives, in our you know city officials, and they ran for these positions um, and running for offices is, is, a, is a lot of work, um, but they chose to run for these offices and uh, stand up to status quo to say, you know, these are the changes that we want to see. Um, and yes, we need people who are protesting in the streets. We need people who are um, fighting in the in the courtrooms. We need people who are in for-profit businesses. So I think it's important to have people everywhere who are advocating for a better society. Um, but to see those people say, you know what, I'm going to be selfless in this um, in this moment because if I just sit back and, and it's business as usual, then nothing nothing's going to change at all, and we're going to have the same conversations, and we're going to be showing up to the same protests over and and over and over, and we're going to be crying about the same things. Um, so I really attribute a lot of the, I guess, the path from there and saying yes to certain opportunities to what I observed. Um, because I would say I was very present, um, but I think in terms of advocacy and, and uh, observing those people saying, you know what, we need to take it a step further and we need to do more and we need to to be in these systems and be in these in these places, that was important for, um, definitely important for, for me to see, uh, as it relates to coastal versus, uh, you know, the Midwest South and growing up in Boston, I think, well, I'll I'll say uniquely St. Louis is very black and white. So you have, and I think sometimes we think our, our country is as well. It's like, all right, we have black and we have white and we have black and white issues. We have so many other cultures, but in Boston, you know, taking public transportation, going around, you see everyone. So you see people from, you know, African of African descent, Caribbean descent, um, Latinx, you see, and, and, you know, just black and white and um, Asian, every everything. And you see, and I, I was used to seeing everything. And oftentimes I go to, you know, when I'm in St. Louis, it's so black and white. Um, that you kind of forget. So I think the differences on the coast, you have more uh, more of a multicultural feel um, and everything isn't just black and white, even though sometimes politically, you know, you turn on the news and it's black and white. But when you're out in community, when you're out just living your life, you see everyone. Um, St. Louis, you go around, you mostly just see, <laughs> you just see black and white people. Um, 
So, so I think those issues are much more, it's much more heightened in that way. In terms of, you know, maybe hate, racism, prejudice that I feel like I, I faced in Boston growing up versus, you know, in St. Louis, uh, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say I've seen much of a difference. And I, I think that, yeah, I, I wouldn't say I've seen much of a difference. I think I've noticed how it shows up more in Boston because of what I see. And I wouldn't even say St. Louis, but in the Missouri area, because we consider ourselves a blue dot in a, in a red state. But even outside of the state, it more shows up in how people legislate, um, what initiatives people put in place, and, and then what people argue or don't argue about. Um like, I, I don't see, you know, people down on, on the street just, you know, slapping people in the face because of the color of their skin. So the overtness that I think people think that there is in the South and, and Midwest is not really there. It's more, it's more so, it's, it's more so when you talk to someone, you understand so I, I, pieces of their belief system. And I, I think that's, that's mostly what it's rooted in is uh, understanding people's beliefs, what they're very loud and, and, and upfront about. Um, whereas I felt like in Boston, it's more, I don't know, covert, but it can be attributed to, oh yeah, we're just East coast rude. And it's like, (laughs) (laughs) it's not that I don't like you because of, uh, what you look like. I just, I don't like people because they're not East coast, but, um, but yeah, so it's, it's a little bit of that. And I think it's the, the, the tensions come with along the, the, the belief line. So, you know, someone with a, I'll say, a, you know, a Confederate flag or a Trump sticker. It's not like, oh, I hate black people. It's, you know, they're, it, I think it's what they hear politically and where they align their values politically um, might be it. So, yeah, so it's, it's, it's interesting. It's interesting and it's different. I'm still trying to, trying to wrap my head around it. I think one of the biggest things, uh, and I'll close this point, is when it came to supporting police. So, I think it's just a lack of language and the understanding. So there's the, there's one side that says, you know, blue lives matter. We got to, we got to stand by our, um, stand by our police. And then the other side is saying, you know, defund the police. Um, And when you get these messages, you have the defund people saying, how could you, how dare you put a blue lives matter? That's, you know, you're anti uh, black people, you're anti um, human rights. And then you have blue light, you're anti um, people who are putting their lives on the line and serving every day. And I think those are the narratives that are pushed, but that's not actually what it is. It's we want to see reform in systems because we know, I, I'll say this just personally, when we had a training with the police at our school, when I was teaching, they were training us. They said, you know, this is what you look for when a student is about to attack you. And this is how you respond in self-defense. And it was a very militaristic, combative way, as opposed to coming at it from a, a you know, a, a social work approach where this is what they might be going to, through. And yes, you want to de-escalate a situation and not put yourself in harm's way, but it wasn't training as if this person, it, it was training as if this person is out to attack me, that um, I am in danger and I need to protect myself at all costs, as opposed to, yeah, what is this person going through that makes them act in this way? And what are the resources and support that um, avoid this situation completely or can actually call the situation better. All right. I want to shift gears a little bit because we've mentioned several times now that we all had went to the same high school together and then we all went on to different, but really terrific colleges. Mm-hmm. And one thing Ricky and I have talked about, we did this first two years ago when Juneteenth first became a federal holiday. And then we 
talked about it again on our last episode a few weeks ago, where we were incredibly lucky to have the educations that we've that we had gotten. But at least for Ricky and I, when Juneteenth was first a federal holiday, he and I were like, I don't know a ton about this, despite having this like wonderful education. It just seemed like something that either we missed because our eyes were closed or it wasn't taught to us. And so I'm curious from your perspective, like having had at least a similar foundational education, did you feel similarly or was that more just Ricky and I, like uh, more personally, like us not being aware of the world? Uh, no, I definitely felt similarly. And to be honest, I mean, I'll go to Juneteenth celebrations today and a big part of Juneteenth celebration is actually educating Black people about Juneteenth. So okay. it's not just people who aren't Black that don't know about yeah. Juneteenth. A lot of us didn't didn't know about it either in the history of it. Um, but it's not something that was, you know, taught in our schools, something that, you know, now that it's a national holiday is getting more notoriety and is working itself into um, into into curriculum. But yeah, it was something I, I didn't even know about. And another added layer is both of my parents are immigrants. So they're not from, they were born and raised in other countries. So oftentimes they feel like American history uh, is not even their history. So that's a big piece of it too. So, you know, I eat, you know, my mom wasn't talking about Juneteenth growing up. Um, she was learning about American, <laughs> American yeah. history her, herself. So that, that is a big part of it, but even, you know, uh, uh, African descendants of slaves. So people who are, you know, were born, have lineage back to uh, slaves in the United States also don't, not a lot of people, well, more now, but didn't know about the history at all. But the question is like, when would you have learned it? Like if you had, you know, um, family members that were super active in the civil rights era, maybe you would have known about that. Um, but perhaps if you didn't, or just where your geolocation um, is, you might not have known. So, no, I didn't know about it growing up. Um, I knew about Pan-Africanism, uh, but that was just because, you know, parents were, were uh, my mom was African. So that was something that I was immersed in. And we had, I mean, we, my church did Kwanzaa celebrations, and I went to a, a Catholic church that was predominantly Black in, in Roxbury. We did Kwanzaa celebrations, but never heard of Juneteenth um, at all. So, uh, so yeah, so it was, it's definitely something that not a lot of people know about. And I know there, there, there's, there's actually a lot. So I, I'll say too, watching, uh, different movies that come out, um, watching, uh, different things and black people have different views on certain things as well. So some people will be in the camp where it's like, oh, we're only making movies about slavery and we can't watch those. We need to watch them about like black billionaires, but then there's a lot of information that we don't know that is so true. So I like to watch it because I find out more and more um, about the the untold history and things that really happen that, you know, are either forgotten or they're, they're just so gruesome that we don't talk about it. Yeah. And I, I think one of the things that Ricky and I have tried to do on these like Juneteenth episodes was educate ourselves and each other about this. Like we highlight you know, some black figures that we maybe didn't learn about growing up. Like I, I talked about uh, Fred Hampton like a couple of weeks ago, because it actually, because of the movie Judas and the Black Messiah, I don't know if you've seen it, but uh, yeah, like I, I just saw it like fairly recently. And I was like, my mind was blown because I heard the name, but I didn't know the story. And I was like, this is why I, I really like Juneteenth as a holiday, because it, it's like an opportunity for all of us to learn more as Rick and I talk about, not just about black history, but about, about like American history in general. And so I, I think it's been 
while I was maybe like skeptical at mm-hmm. first of because because I didn't know and I was like well, but I, I think in the in the few years I've been like what a great opportunity this is for for a new holiday yeah 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 um and so one thing yeah go ahead Ricky oh well I I was uh I was thinking about something when you were talking about like the kind of movies that people are either drawn to it's either kind of the ones that really like dive into some of the the history the particularly the brutal history of slavery versus like the uh yeah like black billionaires the i mean i think about this a lot of the times when my parents watch movies about india and like i watched slumdog millionaire i was like wow i didn't really know about any of this stuff and i thought that was a great movie and my dad is like why is it every time we got to talk about India, it's just got to be like poor people in slums. You know, there are like other people in India, right? Anyways, but but one other conversation that we had recently is, and perhaps this isn't really a, a dichotomy, but we think, well, at least there was like kind of a recent conversation that like put, almost put two different camps. So Tim Scott uh, from South Carolina is obviously running for president. Um, and, you know, as a Republican, one of the things that he kind of has to do is distance himself from sort of the the history of racism as as part of his campaign. But his sort of point was that, you know, look, look at what I have been able to accomplish, despite, you know, some of these historical things, I want to focus on the opportunity that we have in America. And that was in direct contrast to actually, I mean, direct contrast to a lot of people. But in that moment, I think Barack Obama had made some comments about how sort of black Republicans are not understanding that even if they were able to achieve how sort of the system has really just made it so much more difficult for the average black person to achieve. Right. I think I I, very highly simplifying these two camps, but I'm curious um, as someone who is kind of ascendant uh, in, in many of those ways, like how do how do you think about these issues in yeah, I mean, and if and if you know you want to add some nuances to that, I think you were alluding to this too before that every everyone wants to think about things in black and white, and I think we we know about the shades of gray. But yeah, curious to what you're what you're thinking about that. Yeah, I uh, you know I, I I think about this a lot, and I I don't know if there's a a perfect solution or a perfect thought around that. I guess there's not a perfect thought around a lot of things, but one of the first things that comes to mind is, you know, this American tagline or our tagline, it's, you know, you can be, you know, be what you want to be in America. You just got to work hard. Um, And then we have the bootstrap mentality. I pulled myself up by my bootstraps, but I think we also understand that no one ever got anywhere by themselves um, at all. I, I that that's that's what I believe. Um, everyone is going to need or has needed help to um, to succeed. Um, and they all, you know, the other saying is, I'm just throwing out sayings now. But if you want to go, uh, if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, uh, go together. But I say all that to say, um, I think about my own journey, and that's what kind of guides. I don't think that. I understand, yes, I, I worked hard, but and I maximized the opportunities that I had. Um, but I would always people ask me, like, why why are you serving on why'd you serve on the board of education? You know, why'd you um uh want to serve at that nonprofit? You know, what what guides the work that you do um a, as the treasurer right now and looking at equity in St. Louis? And I understand that there was no real difference between me and my neighbor growing up in low-income housing in uh in High Park in, in Boston, but 
my mom had the wherewithal to say, you know what, education is going to be important in this household. Um, and I'm going to search out those opportunities. I always say that I, at my first graduation was actually RL high school because I didn't, I, I never graduated up before that. So I went to kindergarten and then I went to first grade, uh, through fourth grade at, uh, the Murphy elementary school. And that went up to fifth grade, but in fourth grade, my mom, <laughs> my mom, uh, found uh, nativity prep, which was five through eight. So I left there and didn't want to. So I left, uh, nativity and or left the Murphy school in fourth grade to go to uh, Nativity, but I was only there five, six, and then RL started seven. So it was all, she was about, you know, I'm going to make sure that, you know, I'm taking off time from work. I'm, you know, doing, going above and beyond to make sure that I had a quality education because she understood what the statistics were if she wasn't that intentional. Um, But, you know, what if, what if her boss said, you know what, I'm not going to give you that time off because that is a reality that a lot of, uh, of parents face. And we want to live in a, in a in a world where you go to any school, you get the same opportunities to be whatever you want to be and you get that quality educational experience, but it's just not, it's not the case. Um, so with that, I say that, yes, there was a lot of hard work, but, you know, Nativity Prep could have said no. They only took, I think, 20 boys a year. Um, they could have said no. And then what, what would that have meant? And, you know, she found out about the ISEE exam uh, maybe a month before students were taking it. So uh, I was lucky enough to be able to take that test on a month's notice, do well enough to get uh, the score I needed to get into RL and then, you know, have a good interview there and um, with Mr. Obelamia and have a school that understood that, okay, diversity is important. Like I, I wouldn't say I, I'm the, the smartest person in the world. I went to RL, I did well. Um, I was getting, you know, all A's in middle school and, and elementary school. Uh, but so were a lot of the my friends that I knew, but they didn't go on to they didn't go on to an RL. They didn't go on to an, a nativity prep. And maybe education wasn't as stressed uh, in their household. But when I look at the outcomes, it's yes, I was lucky enough to be able to be on this path um, and lucky enough to go to GW and um, them offer me a scholarship that made it affordable to go there, be successful and have a high school education that prepared me for the rigors of college. So all of that is, yes, I had to work hard along the way. I struggled along the way, but um, those opportunities to excel were definitely, you know, I would say more luck than, than, uh, than anything else. And I, I, my, my North star is making sure that we create opportunities so people don't have to be lucky to get a quality education. Um, And like I said, we all have decisions. We all, we all uh, can work as hard as we're going to, as, as we want to, but we should all be able to have the same opportunities. And and that wasn't the case. And, you know, the, the, uh, the last thing I'll say on that note is pivotal moment for me was when I was coming home from RL had to be their seventh or eighth grade year, probably seventh grade year, actually. And I have this giant backpack as we all pretty much did at RL. Um, I'm coming home off the bus. It's a drive backpack walking with my, um, my good friend who just lived a couple doors down from me and didn't, he didn't have a backpack at all. And I was like, Where, where's your homework? You not have homework tonight. And he pulls out one piece of paper from his pocket and says, this is all I, this is the homework I have for the week. And so it was at that moment that I'm like, I have, I, I have a different opportunity here and I am no different. I didn't, I don't consider myself, didn't consider myself smart in this person, harder working um, than my friend. It was just, I had different opportunities um, that not everyone had. Yeah, as as a teacher, like as I taught middle school, and I would be 
piling work and homework on kids and they I, I wish that everyone had that same uh mindset of this is an opportunity that i'm getting to do this because that's what it is right it's the high expectations and mm -hmm. it's like and not not everyone realizes that at 13 or 14 years old and i'm not sure that i realized it at 13 or 14 years old but it's cool that you did but that's i mean that that's exactly what it's all about is demanding yep. excellence because yep. as you said anybody you, you or your neighbor anybody can achieve totally agree i think your your point about opportunity really rings true to me but I think what's interesting, kind of to build off Ricky's question, given so yesterday, so the Supreme Court effectively ended affirmative action, and that goes with the Tim Scott, Clarence Thomas belief in agency. And you talked about that, that we all have agency here. And I think Tim Scott would be the first to agree that like, hey, we need to do a better job providing opportunities for all people, black, white, Asian, Hispanic, whatever, but that we we shouldn't be giving people opportunities based on that race obviously there are people you know judge J justice jackson and president obama feel very differently about that and so it just i guess it's a little bit building off ricky's question but more specifically like when you see affirmative action fall how do you feel about that yeah um yeah so uh not happy with it i think that and, you know, some of the, the reasoning behind it is that, like you were saying, we need equality. We want to have a level playing field for everyone. And I get that. Um, and that's that I think that's what everyone wants. The problem is that the current way the system is designed, that that doesn't happen. And when you have a, a measure that infuses equity, so making sure people get what they need to be able to level that playing field like affirmative action, um, that is something that is a driver toward what I feel like they ultimately want, which is equality. Um, unfortunately, there are a lot of different changes. So affirmative action on its own does not lead us to, it's an equity measure, does not get us equality. Um, but affirmative action or equity measures plus um, looking at root causes in the system to see why um, these systems are actually inequitable and why they're leading to a lack of equality is what eventually gets us there. Um, to say we want everything to be equal, so we're going to take out any measures that help to get equality or get that equity, that undoes, that that really is a, a method of undoing what they actually want to do. Um, so, yeah, so so that's how I feel about it. I know that, you know, statistics show that affirmative action actually helps, has helped more white women than anyone else, um, than actually people of color, which you know, is, is, it's helping. So it is helping, um, or it was helping until it got knocked down. But yeah, so I, I do believe that equity measures need to be in place to transform these systems. The problem is that these systems inherently work a certain way. Um, and, and, and I think when people think that when we talk about systems that are historically oppressive or marginalizing, um, there's like malice and ill will in some of those places. And that's not always the case. I think about my experience with TFA St. Louis. So we had 100 core members, like I said, and uh, I was one of three black men of this core of 100 and one of seven core members that identified as black or African-American. And uh, this this was like, OK, this is interesting. It's like and they were saying there we we can't find uh, qualified people of color that want to teach. And at the time we were like, the, the seven of us were like, well, we know we had known a lot of our friends who had good grades and, you know, were stellar candidates and had a strong desire to teach. And actually some of them are now in education, but we're not accepted in the TFA and we couldn't figure out why. So we started looking at the recruitment process. And overwhelmingly, if you look in the United States, 
uh, most teachers are white women. And uh, there are a lot of white women in TFA. So when you're looking at recruitment and hiring, uh, the recruitment team, mostly comprised of white women, would go to their colleges and spaces that they know, which also consists of mostly white women. Um, And then when they're interviewing, the answers that they tend to like and the people that they tend to feel a connection with uh, as white women teachers, it's like, you know, I think this would be another good white women teacher because they're white women. And the uh, the saying is people like people like themselves. And so do I think that they were being malicious? Absolutely not. But when you look at systems and processes that, you know, they're, you're going to have an overwhelming bias, even if it's an unconscious bias. Um, so when they started changing up who was, you know, what who was in the uh, recruitment uh, process and pipeline, they saw that they would actually get more applicants and be able to, to get a more diverse pool. So again, do I think that was malicious on the, the efforts of white women? No. Uh, but when, you, when you're when you able to look at things like that, it's not like it's, all right, we just infused affirmative action in the, the TFA hiring process. It's like, no, we're going to look at our processes and see where there might be these unknown biases or unconscious biases, because ultimately what we're looking for is a more diverse pool. Yeah, I, I I felt so similarly. I was actually re- I, in in many ways like conflicted hearing the uh, some of the opinions about affirmative action because I actually thought Clarence Thomas made some good points. Gorsuch actually made some interesting points, but I think what was lost is that affirmative action in and of itself was never the solution, right? It's like, hey, these Harvards of the world, the UNCs of the world, they are gatekeepers to all of these you know, whether it's a job as a federal judge, like, you know, both Clarence Thomas and Katandi Brown, right? Yale and Harvard or CEO of whatever, whatever company that until you start getting the representation there, then you can't get the trickle down representation, like you were saying in the Teach for America, because you don't have that sort of broad swath of people hiring and hiring people or seeing qualities in people like themselves that other people can't see because they just don't, you know, they don't, they don't relate. And I think that was the thing that was the hardest for me. It's like affirmative action was never meant to be this like permanent solution. And it was this idea that if we get people out into the world with those kind of credentials, then we can start to see more equality of opportunity, which is, I think, really what we're looking for, not, not the equality of outcome. But it's tricky because when you hear the people who are trying to defend it, they're also kind of grasping on like, no, affirmative action is the only way that you can get these types of students in these schools. And I, I struggle with that too. I actually think it could be more interesting with in this post-affirmative action world that I don't see Harvard as trying to go to like, okay, we're just going to be an all white and Asian school from here on out. Like, I think maybe they'll actually have some different ways of of really diversifying the school in terms of thought, race, and socioeconomic status and everything. So it's like, like, like anything, it's, it's definitely going to make things harder in the near term, but like, maybe there's, maybe there's some hope, uh, a little light at the end of the tunnel too. Yeah. So just to now transition to like your actual job as, as a treasurer, I knew we'd come back to it originally. You're, You're talking all about creating opportunity for people and using equitable solutions to create equal solutions or equal outcomes or yeah, what I'm we're trying, we're trying to use equity to create equality essentially. So I'd be curious how you found your role in these two years. Can you talk a little bit like some of the initiatives that you've undertaken, how things have gone just generally on, on how's, how's the work been? 
Yeah. Uh, so it's, it's, it's been an interesting two, two years and two months. Um, <laughs> it feels like a lot longer and a lot shorter at the same time. Um, but yeah, it's, it's been great. So a couple of the initial, well, I guess I'll start with, you know, what I do and what I manage, what, uh, one of the big things, well, the treasury department. Uh, so we basically cut all the checks for, for the city. So we pay the city's bill, man, manage the city's bank accounts, um, make sure there are enough, there's enough money in the, the accounts to, to pay the bills. Um, and then we also manage the city's investment portfolio. So we work with different city departments, like our water division, airport, um, to make to see what uh, percentage of their reserves can actually go to long term financial planning for the city, uh, so that go, that that works out really well. The other two pieces I have where I get to do a little bit more of that equity work is the Office of Financial Empowerment. So um, a bunch of cities across the country have offices of financial empowerment, or um, what do they call them CF. Uh, yeah, well, offices of financial empowerment or financial empowerment centers. Yep. So it's one of those two names. And the goal there is just to make sure, yes, we want the city to be financially healthy as an institution, but we also want people who live here um, and need access to capital, access to financial resources, access to financial literacy. We want them to be able to have that because we know them having that means that the homes that we're building, people can actually buy them and live in them. Um, the wealth that we want to see people build, that that can actually happen. And uh, and they can be great contributors to uh, a great city and, and feel like their city cares about them and feel like they can actually make it make it here in St. Louis financially. Uh, so, yeah, so we do that. And I do financial literacy activities and classes for youth and adults. Um, the former mayor started a program called the College Kids Program, and we start a college savings account for every student that goes to a free public school in the city of St. Louis. And we put the first $50 in there. And uh, the goal is to get to $500 for each account because studies show that students with at least $500 saved are three times more likely to go to college and uh, four times more likely to graduate from college. Um, I recently was back at GW for an alumni weekend and learned that an undergrad uh, degree when I was there it was 50,000 and now it's 90,000. So I don't know if 500 is still the bar <laughs> for that. I think that we need to account for inflation. It might be 1,500 uh, or 1,700 yeah. now. But um, so that's why we have that. And uh, more than just saving for college, it's having those intentional conversations with family members early enough, like they're starting in kindergarten to say, this is how to manage, how to manage money wisely. But also, this is what a college-going path looks like, even if they decide not to go to college. But it's it's planning, and it's early planning, and it's not like, oh, I just wait until they're in 11th grade to start thinking about college, um, especially for a lot of families where they might not have gotten college themselves. They're, they're first generation. Um, so that that is important, and we try to, uh, try to provide as much knowledge and, and know-how around that as possible. Um, and then a very interesting part of my job is managing uh, parking or supervising parking for the city. So the metered parking, parking tickets that you might get for parking illegally. Ooh, and, then, <laughs> and, then, uh, and then the garages and lots. But, you know, actually, so the first $50 that we put into the student accounts comes from parking tickets. So that's what we use to, to uh, yeah. <laughs> that's yeah. what we tell St. Louis to make them feel a little bit better about it. So we do that. Uh, and uh, I actually just came back from a conference about fines and fees with cities. So we are looking at in terms of that equity piece, knowing that if I get a ticket and maybe I don't have twenty five dollars to pay that ticket right now, they're not as much as they're in Boston, but uh, maybe I don't have that money. And then I get fined and feed and it triples. And then when I do have the money, instead of paying uh, twenty five dollars for my ticket, now that's ninety dollars. Right. 
Um, so we're thinking about how do we infuse equity in and say that, you know what, we can be, we can enforce the law, but we can also be compassionate and say, all right, you know, you didn't have it back then. Um, we're going to take off those fines and fees because really what we just wanted was the original ticket so we can get you down to to that um, and that's for everyone. So it's, you know, someone says, you know, they want to game the system and say, oh, I couldn't pay it, but now I can't take off my fees. It's like, you know what, if it helps more of those people not be in these, uh, not have the city put additional debt on them to decrease their economic mobility, then that's a good thing. Yeah, yeah all of those things are, are really cool. Uh, I want to talk about, I was actually going to ask how you fund like the $50, but you, you already answered that already. But I think maybe equally, if not more important, is you saying like starting the conversation with families and getting them prepared to at least start thinking about a college path early. You mentioned like St. Louis isn't a huge city, but it's it's big. 300,000 people is not small necessarily for a major city, but it's still a lot. So how are you or how is the city trying to ensure that those conversations are broad? I think that's like the frustrating part when you're a teacher. You're like, oh, I can have this impact on... 50, 100, 200 kids, but like, I, I want to be having this impact everywhere. So I imagine it's almost a similar feeling as the treasurer. So curious to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah. So the the way that we make it broad, uh, so we have our classes and we get our, our bank partners to partner with us, um, but we have them in community. So we have them at City Hall, um, we'll have them at churches, we'll have them at community centers. So we really try to reach out. And in addition to the classes, because again, a blanket class on budgeting might not work for everyone in everyone's financial situation. Um, and people might be in different places. If I'm budgeting as an 18 year old and I'm sitting in the same class as someone who's budgeting at 65 on a, for, to get ready for, you know, fixed income, that's very different. So we also offer free one-on-one -on -one, uh, financial coaching through uh, Operation Hope and through, through the city. So we offer that as a service to get people to talk one-on-one -on -one about what is your financial situation? What are you looking to do? And how can we support? Um, so that's a way that we can take that broadness and make it specific to um, specific to the needs of um, the needs of individual St. Louisans. And then, uh, in addition to that, like we let people come to us. So we're big on partnerships. So uh, we had an organization come to us and say, "Hey, we just want to do some financial training for our." Um, staff, we have a, we're a small 501c3, and everyone uh, there's no like big four, you know, um, 401k or an investment uh, manager for them, so it's self managed. So it's like we we want to bring in someone to be able to teach them how uh, they can maximize their portfolio, just be more knowledgeable about it, and not uh, as fearful about it. So we do a lot of partnerships in community with organizations to get them what they need, and if we don't have it, we'll we'll find somebody. So our bank partners, we work with 16 different banks. Uh, for the treasury side of the city, but they also have community reinvestment dollars and community um, education, things that they do. So we'll call them and say, hey, someone needs this. Um, how can we support? And, it, and it's all about just maximizing value to the city. Uh, we had a neighborhood association. They've racked up about $40,000 that they've saved um, and they want to start investing it. So we're like, oh, then they didn't know how. They're like, we know we want to invest it. We don't want to just put it in a savings account. Uh, what do we do? And said, all right, we'll connect it to a bank partner. And because those banks, of course, want the city's dollars, they're more apt to uh, say, oh, yeah, we'll definitely help out that neighborhood association. So using that leverage, too, um, because it's a win for the neighborhood, it's a win for the city, um, it's a win for the bank. So they have another account and then they they feel valued as a, a, a city bank partner. And um, and we we. We, we value them as well. 
again, very cool. Win, win, win. Love to hear that. Uh, just, just to wrap up, you said that you're not always thinking about what's next, but you're like, where you're, where you're most needed. What is, where do you, where, where do you feel? Do you feel like you're needed in this position for an extended period of time? Or do you feel like you might be needed somewhere else in the near future? Yeah, I think, uh, <laughs> uh, I, I would say yes in the more immediate term. So I have a year left on my term and I kick off my campaign in August. Uh, so I will, my primary is August of 2024 and the general is in November of 2024. So I am running for another term in this role. After that, I don't know. So I don't know what, you know, St. Louis will look like from a political stand, uh, standpoint. Um, I don't know how many gray hairs I'll have <laughs> doing, from doing it another uh, four years. But yeah, so I, I, one of my favorite Batman quotes is you either, um, uh, die a hero or live long enough to see yourself become a villain and yeah. i've seen it play out even in just these 12 years firsthand um a lot of our aldermen who have worked really hard to get the city um where it needs to be but have stayed there so long that now they're actually impeding progress and i always say i never want to i never want to do that so i always want to evaluate what is what is my value here that the former treasurer like like i said saw something in me and said you know i i want uh, I'm ready to to leave this office, and of course, she took a higher office. But understanding what it means to pass it on to to, to someone who's going to take it in the future, uh, people. When I first got appointed, people were like, "Who? Who is that guy?" And some people had known me from from school board, but I'm not from St. Louis, which most people from St. Louis uh, have. Are, are, most people in St. Louis are from St. Louis, so uh, that was something. And I, I didn't have a long political history, so she could have appointed someone with a big political name that would have gotten her all these votes in the next election. But um, I really credit her for saying, no, this is about moving St. Louis forward. So I'm choosing the best candidate for for the role and not making it political, um, even though everything's political, but not making it based on what, what my next election is, but who is going to do the best in the job and do what's best for St. Louis. So for me, yeah, it's it's I take that same mentality. And if it's best for St. Louis for me to, to stay in this, stay here and the voters vote me in, that'll be great. I won't be here for 20, 24 years, though, I, I, I'm a big believer in as the world changes, I think different ideas need to come in, different people need to come in um, to different roles. So maybe a different role, um, but I won't be treasurer for life. I'll save that. Yeah, no, I mean, I can see you've already done so much in these last the 12 years you've been in St. Louis that it'd be hard to imagine you doing one thing for 12 years. Uh, but if, Adam, if, if people want to follow along with either you personally or the work that you're doing as treasurer, where might they be able to do that? Yeah. Uh, so I'm on uh, most of the social medias. Uh, I'm on Facebook, just Adam Lane uh, on Instagram, Adam Leo Lane. Uh, and then my office has our uh, social handles as well. So STL Treasurer on pretty much all of the handles. Um, we're also we have our website. So stltreasurer.org. And if you want to follow and learn more about my campaign, Adam Lane for STL.com. That's awesome. We hope people, whether you're in St. Louis, around St. Louis, or anywhere in the country, check Adam out. Adam, it's really appreciate you joining us. And also, like, as a former, like, high school classmate of yours, like, very proud of all of the work you've done. It's it's really cool to hear all of the great work that you've done and you're doing. And uh, it's been really a, a pleasure to be able to talk with you for a little bit. Absolutely. Thank you so much. And I'm uh, I'm I'm happy to just be on the call with you all. It's always great to see uh, the fellow RL boys doing things and staying connected, too. I think that's a big thing. So keep me connected. For sure. All right. Thank, thanks so much, dude. We appreciate you.
All right. Thank you. Well, like I just said to Adam, that was really cool. It's awesome to hear from and to see someone that we knew growing up go on to such success and doing not only being so successful, but doing such good work. There was so much that he said that resonated with me, particularly around creating opportunity. And it's fun. And that's what he's done in, in in his time in St. Louis, whether teaching or in non nonprofit world or in elected office or now is in city government to create opportunities for more people in St. Louis to be successful. And I think that's so much of what we talk about. That's what all of us want. We might want to get there in different ways, but to see someone out there doing the work on such a broad level was was really cool. And I I like all the talk he said, I agreed with, but he's also walking the walk, which is even even cooler. Yeah, yeah, you definitely always uh, harp on that, uh, particularly, and it was, yeah, it's, it was really interesting just to hear his career trajectory. I think the other thing that just struck me was, I, I feel like we've had some guests, oh, we've had a number of guests from our high school before, but they've either been our age, I want to say either been our age or older, and it was... Uh, that was is is very cool to think about. You know, Adam Lane in, in high school, he was selling himself short. I, I'm pretty sure he was pretty smart back back then, and he's he's definitely very smart and very eloquent today. Um, but still, just to think about you know that from from there to here is uh that's cool. Yeah, but I think exactly to your point, he is super smart. But to his point his neighbor was super smart too. And, and there, and, and I, you and I could say the same thing about growing up with, with our friends as well. And it's, and so his point is just like, how do we, he was lucky that he got these opportunities, but then he maximized them as he said, and now it's all about creating, it's, it's a pass it along, right? It's creating opportunities for others as well. And I do, I really appreciated the mindset of like, where am I needed most? And I think it's, it's so hard. And certainly I get this, kind of going through the transition myself of like to turn away from one thing that you think is good and valuable and you're doing good work to do something else. And uh, obviously, like, as he said, he said yes to a number of opportunities and um, just is just doing bigger, bigger things and better things. And um, yeah, that was, that was cool. I think it's just such a great attitude to have in, in like your, I was, I was going to say as young adult, but really at any age of just being like, to reflect on like, where, where am I needed most? Where can I do the most good? Yeah, totally. And, and, uh, and that sort of attitude that he had, which was both being able to take pride in his accomplishments, which are certainly owed in large part or in, in, in huge part to his own effort, but also to recognize the other, both like his parents and his high school and even you know, nativity prep, which you know does a lot of great work in Boston for, for, for just that, just like giving people the opportunity, you still got to capitalize on it, but it's yeah. like the recognition that we're in a state where not everyone has that. I thought, yeah, uh, his, his personal arc is, uh, is definitely one to be, uh, is one to be admired. Well, it's, it's so funny because it's, it, I thought in answering your question about like this dichotomy between the Tim Scott arguments and the, uh, Barack Obama arguments like he said it perfectly right he gave all he 
acknowledge that there's tons of agency in success and it's about maximizing opportunities and he's done that and but he also talked about like that there are systemic issues that don't allow as many people of certain races in particular gender sexuality whatever uh, income levels to have the same opportunities at, at success uh so i thought like he was that perfect example as you're saying of like why does it have to be one or the other? It can be both. But I could see either side being like, see, this is another example of like how <laughs> that why why we don't need why the systems are are working fine. Like they're not messed up and people, it's all about agency. And you can see the other being like, well, no, this is just the one example. And look at his neighbors and the other outcomes. This is why systems don't work. And it's he, as you and I talked about last episode, is like the perfect example of it can be both. Yes, definitely. Well, uh, you know, I think I feel like that that we we can leave it right there. He he really cover helped us cover kind of like a number of different topics. And for once, I I don't I don't feel. Uh, I mean, I think we I, we'd certainly love to have him on again at some point, and gonna definitely continue to follow his career, political aspirations, or otherwise. But um, I, yeah, I feel like I, I said what I needed to say this week. <laughs> and oh, and that's I, uh, that's always good. Yeah. <laughs> That's a good thing, Ricky. Uh, yeah, a huge thanks again to Adam. And we do hope that people follow along if you want to keep tabs on what he's doing or support him. And he said he's got the campaign upcoming next year. I'm sure he would appreciate anybody's support that's in a position to do so. If you are a new listener and you enjoy the program, you can follow us on Instagram at a underscore gentleman's underscore disagreement. And you can find us wherever you get your podcasts, Apple, Spotify, all of the above. We appreciate everyone who listens and we hope that everyone has a wonderful July 4th. Indeed. Till next time, bud. See ya. We stay up all night on Garner Avenue Debating all the issues of the day No agenda, not yet Talking heads Running around till we forget where it was we began Some mornings you were away Some morning left your ego bruised But what I wouldn't give for Hope I used to find in a case of lion's head Folks of different minds Because even though we did not share The pains we share That American ideal Friends made over arguments In an early morning buzz Need an early morning buzz Learn the hard way But to those who would die upon that hill Quiet truth is better than rain. Somewhere along the line, we seem to have forgotten the values sometimes being wrong. Some mornings you away, the morning let your ego bruise. But what I wouldn't give for the hope I used to find in a, a case of lion's head. Folks of different minds Because though we didn't share Opinions we share Like American ideals 
Friends made over arguments and an early morning buzz. I need an early morning buzz. There's hope behind the bluster, cause the old Main Street may not sell. It's full of folks just like you and me. When we have trouble seeing the human for the politics, it's time to find a better way to disagree. Some days you win, some days you leave your ego through. But what I wouldn't give for hope I used to find and change the lies head from folks with different minds because though we did not share. Opinions we share on that American ideal Friends made over arguments And an early morning buzz oh, What I wouldn't give for The hope I used to find In a case of lion's head Folks are different minds Because though we did not Share opinions we share That American ideal Friends made over arguments And an early morning buzz Need an early morning bird.